chapter 5, verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The multitude are found in the last few verses of chapter 4. And by the opening verse of chapter 5, he is going to give his famous Sermon on the Mount. First and foremost to his apostles and around 20,000 other people that have come to listen to the words of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven spoken of in verse 3 once again has a twofold application. It's a physical and it's a spiritual realm. Here the Lord is on the earth speaking and uh, those that have come to see him and hear him are in the presence of the king and his kingdom. By the time the Lord died I went back to glory we are now living in his spiritual kingdom. At the end of the tribulation he comes back to earth to rule and reign from Jerusalem for 1,000 years. All of the Old Testament saved saints are going to be resurrected and return with him. The church of course will be reigning and ruling with him and according to 1st Corinthians chapter 6 we will even have angels in subjection to us. So a physical and a spiritual realm as far as the kingdom of heaven is concerned but to also keep in mind that what you find here in the fifth chapter doesn't save you. For the most part what the Lord is saying here has direct application a to Israel and B to those alive in the thousand year reign. For the church age here and now we take this to be primarily for spiritual purposes. We don't approach the Sermon on the Mount in order to be saved although it is good to use this as a measuring rod to make sure that we are walking in the spirit but uh, you have to always understand that this aspect of the New Testament, the Gospels, are primarily given to the Jews living under the law. The poor in spirit will receive the kingdom of heaven and until you are born again you are dead in your sins so you can't be poor in spirit until you are born again. Verse 4 Blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted mourning over their sin, mourning over their helplessness, mourning over the depraved world around them. 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The New Jerusalem, of course. Humility and meekness go hand in hand. 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. That's a good sign of a saved person, a good saved person, a mature saved person will mourn after righteousness they will hate their sin and they will seek to always do what is right and when they fall and stumble and they always will they confess their sins and they get up and start all over again blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain a mercy verse 7 8 blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God the pure in heart is what happens post your new birth pre your new birth your heart was desperately wicked you were an enemy of God. Your righteousness 
was as filthy rags. You were depraved with a capital D. Post your new birth, these are the attributes which should be in your life. And you were told about the fruits of the Spirit from the book of Galatians. And you can easily compare Matthew 5 with Galatians 5. And do so like a checklist to make sure that you are walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh. You will see God, found in verse 8, the triune God. You will see the Father face to face. You will see the Son face to face. And you will see the Holy Spirit face to face. Three persons, one God. Nine, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Not the sort of people that go around the world trying to stop wars, trying to resolve disputes between landlords and their tenants or some of the hot spots around the world but uh, the peacemakers here are those that try to live a righteous life they try to be reconciled to unsaved people or backslidden Christians they try to do good they put the Lord first in their lives and everything else comes afterwards 10 blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Present tense. You can easily read these verses and put the case forward from the standpoint of once saved, always saved, or if saved, always saved. Another good expression to demonstrate our eternal salvation. The Gospel of John told us that the Lord had us in his hand and the Son had us in his hand. Double security. But here... If you are being persecuted for righteousness sake, that is evidence that you are saved and therefore you already have the kingdom of heaven. You are already saved. 11. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. That's a good thing to enjoy when you are slandered, when you are treated with contempt for your testimony, for your faith in the Lord. I remember some years ago when I first had a banner, I went on the streets with it and I hadn't been there very long and my father had gone off to get a coffee or something and this man came walking up the street and he saw my banner and he was cursing and cursing and cursing at me. He was furious and I stood my ground and I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And he walked next to me, walked around me, and started to scream in my ear, calling me pretty much every name under the sun. He didn't know me personally, and I didn't know him personally, but he saw the sign, he saw the scriptures, and I was being persecuted at that moment in time for my faith in the Lord. 12. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Your testimony should be of the utmost importance. You will of course always stumble, you will never be sinless, and when you are at your best you are called a fanatic. And when you stumble, when you fall into sin, you are called a hypocrite. You can rarely win. You can't please everybody. But nonetheless, the Lord looks at the heart. 
whereas man looks on the outward appearance. So you need to do the best you can. You need to read the scripture daily, walk in the spirit, renew your mind, and have a good prayer life. These things are paramount. Otherwise, you become fruitless. You become redundant in the service of the Lord. And here you are trodden under foot of men. 14. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. There are no secret service Christians. But uh, saying that, let me say this, that not always is it convenient or even appropriate to let your light shine. It is a fine line, and one thing that I don't do is ask people to do what I wouldn't do, or advise people to do what I wouldn't do. Uh, otherwise, that would make me a hypocrite. But uh, we were told to be ready in season and out of season, and always be ready to give a defense of the faith that lies within us. So we are never off duty as Christians, but uh, also, as I say, it isn't always convenient or appropriate to get on your soapbox and start preaching to unsaved people. But here, the Lord Jesus Christ expects you to be ready, if asked at a moment's notice why you are saved. And therefore, your light should always be switched on, not switched off, or even on a dimmer switch. 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. That part of scripture should be memorized. We don't keep the law. The law was given to the Jews and the Lord was a Jew and he fulfilled the law perfectly. And by our faith in him, we are saved. I've used this analogy in the past, and it's a good analogy. And it goes something like this, that if you were to be asked to enter an Olympic tournament, and we had the Olympics coming up in the UK this summer, it would be pretty unusual, if not downright inappropriate, to ask a non-Olympian to enter an Olympian sport. If you had an Olympian swimming, for example, and you were not an Olympian, but you were expected to enter the same tournament as an Olympian swimmer, you wouldn't really stand a chance, would you? But if the Olympian swimmer swam the race for you, and won the race for you, then you would somehow be able to enjoy some of that glory. Well, that is a picture of the Lord's substitutionary atonement. He ran the race for us, and he finished it, and he passed it. We couldn't do it. We all fall short. We all continue to fall short. Every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Acts chapter 15, even the apostles themselves said, we couldn't keep the law. If you try to keep the law and fail in one area, the book of James says you have fallen in all areas. 
In other words, if you break one aspect of the law, you've broken all of the law and therefore are guilty before the Lord. But through his death, burial and resurrection and our faith in that, 1 Corinthians 15, we are saved. And according to John chapter 5, we have already passed from death, hell, judgment unto life here and now and into eternity. 18. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Now keep this in mind. We don't keep the law in order to be saved. However, heaven and earth hasn't yet passed away. Therefore the law is still in place. This is a paradox. We as saved people use the law to witness to the lost. John Wesley said wisely that if he had 60 minutes with an unsaved man or woman, he would spend 50 minutes on the law, on the holiness and on the righteousness of God with that party and 10 minutes on the cross. The law is given to sinners. Without the law, we don't see our sin and we can't see the reason to be saved from our sin. So the law is still in place to be presented as the Lord standard for unsaved men and women, but to the saved we have already passed from death unto life. Romans chapter 8 said there was no more condemnation to those that walk in the Lord. So you can leave 17, 18 and even 19 together, but always keep in memory first and foremost who is the Lord speaking to? Which dispensation is this covering or is this appropriate for or aimed at? Which generation is receiving this message? B. Does it have any direct application to us today? And C. Does it have any eschatological connotation? And I've already dealt with that briefly at the beginning of the fifth chapter. 19. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven, as I've already said, has a physical and spiritual application to break the commandments and teach them would mean that you are least in the kingdom, but you are still in the kingdom. But whoso shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's a paradox. It's a play on words. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. The Lord's main purpose in the New Testament was A, to die for the sins of the world, B, honor the Father, and C, save mankind to the uttermost, Hebrews chapter 8. He saves us totally when we come to him. The righteousness here found in the 20th verse is impossible to attain to. The Pharisees were completely righteous. They had the whole Old Testament canon of scripture and probably the Talmud too, down to the letter. They had an outward righteousness. They would be elevated among their peers, among the man and woman in the street. They were revered. They were seen as royalty. How could you exceed that righteousness? Isaiah 64, 6 told us that our righteousness is filthy in the presence of the Lord. But 
Second Corinthians says, He that knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He became a sin offering, Isaiah 53, for us. He died in our place. But go back to verse 1, verse 2. Who is he speaking to? The Jews. There's no grace here. It's law, temple, circumcision, animal sacrifice. This will be mirrored in the thousand year reign. But here and now, those living in the church age, this has spiritual application. 21. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. In reverse order, Paul speaks about the Galatians and the Corinthians as being fools and foolish. So, this isn't a blanket ban on calling a spade a spade and saying that you cannot call somebody a fool because you can. However, if it's an empty statement, if you use it in a loose way, then it becomes an insult, in which case you have sinned. Raka, counsel, these are Jewish terms. To be angry with your brother without a cause puts you in the wrong. You can have a righteous anger, of course, if you watch the news daily, or if you read the newspapers regularly, or if you have any understanding of the world outside of your church or your own orbit, then I'm sure you have a lot of righteous anger when you hear about some of the injustices which occur on a daily basis. That comes from the Lord. That's your conscience. Only a human being has a conscience. So you can have a righteous anger. You can have a righteous contempt. But uh, here the Lord is speaking of those that have an unrighteous anger, a carnal anger. 21 spoke about not killing. Uh, you were told not to murder. That's what it means. An individual cannot go and murder another individual. The state can, according to Romans 13, but a typical man or woman would be in the wrong if they were to go out and take another life. Here the Lord is speaking to civilians, not uh, countries, not nations, not the military or the police of today, but uh, men and women. And again, 21 and 22 is primarily aimed at the Jews, and they would end up at the council, a Jewish expression. 22, therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Temple. This has no application whatsoever to save man or woman today. And you cannot use this to argue for purgatory, as Catholics have done, because here, you, singular, were told to bring your gift, singular, to the altar, the Jewish temple. If you are in purgatory, how can you do your penance, quote-unquote? How can you, singular, do anything you can't? This is speaking to the Jews, from the Jewish Messiah, about being reconciled to their brother, their fellow Jew.
or fellow sister, before they come to the temple to offer the Lord himself your gift. Again, it has no real application to the saved party apart from a spiritual application. In other words, don't come to the Lord. Don't do what you do if you have sin in your life, if you haven't forgiven a brother or sister in the Lord, because he won't hear you. You are temporarily out of fellowship with the Lord. But if you confess your sins, according to First John, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all of your sins and to cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. Scripture with Scripture. 25. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Again, this is an Old Testament analogy of what would happen to two parties which wouldn't be reconciled. 26. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. This, once again, is quoted by the Catholics. But you can't cite this because you were told in 25 to quickly agree with your adversary. Otherwise, you'd be cast into prison. How can you do so when you are dead in purgatory being purged? You can't. 26. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. To fantasize over a woman or women puts you in the condemnation of an adulterer. You are already told from 22 that if you hated somebody, you were a murderer. Just the thought in the eyes of the Lord makes you guilty in the eyes of the Lord. The thought is the intention and the chances are, if you could do something like that, you probably would do something like that. But the Holy Spirit is restraining you. But 28 says, if you lust after a woman, if you continually lust after a woman, if you continually fantasize after a woman, then you have committed adultery with her in your heart. Lusting isn't as serious as adultery itself. First Corinthians 6 says that the adulterers won't inherit the kingdom of God. But here, if you lust after a woman, or if a woman lusts after a man, it is adultery. And it has to be confessed in order to be restored unto fellowship with the Lord. 29. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Mutilating yourself won't alleviate the lust that you have in your heart. One church father did castrate himself. He did uh, mutilate himself when he got to this part of scripture. But that wouldn't have resolved his lust problem. It goes back to the need of the new birth. Now remember, the Lord is speaking to thousands of people who, for the most part, don't believe on him, are not going to believe on him, and are going to be calling for his blood and his condemnation. So what you have here is the Lord elevating and sharpening the law, something that the book of Isaiah said that he would do from the seventh chapter. He's simply giving his audience a picture, an understanding, a vision of the Lord's holiness. For the Jews, this would have been completely 
unimaginable to have to listen to. They had this outward righteousness that if we didn't do this or if we didn't do that, if we didn't say this or if we didn't say that, we would be good with the Lord. And he says, no, you were told not to do it. Now I'm telling you that if you even think it, it is the same as doing it. Hence, you need to come to me in order to be saved. Job said that he made a covenant with his eyes that he wouldn't look upon a maid. Spurgeon said wisely that we can't help birds flying over our heads, but we can stop birds from settling in our hair. And that's true too. We don't make provision for sin. We stand away and we try to avoid it at all costs. Because if we are saved, it will drain us of our ability to live a righteous and a powerful life for the Lord. And if we remain in this particular sin, or any sin for that matter, then we lose our righteousness, we lose our standing, we lose our fellowship with the Lord. Hence why we need to confess our sins quite possibly really on a daily basis to stay in fellowship with the Lord. But here you are told to remove your right eye, not your left eye, not both eyes, in order to avoid being cast into hell. One footnote that I will also mention on verse 29, that obviously this is figurative language. I'm sure most people can see that and understand it. Um, something to quickly cover would be the subject of letterism. Letterism is the theological term for taking every verse in the Bible to be literal. And this would be a good example. If you took this verse to be literal, every man and every woman would have their right eye missing and their right hand from verse 30 missing as well. Obviously we don't take this verse to be literal. We don't take John 6 to be literal when we were told to eat his flesh and drink his blood. This is figurative language. Letterism clearly is a very dangerous concept and is full of all sorts of theological traps which I've already given to you. But nonetheless, this is a serious warning from the Lord about sin. So although he's speaking to the Jews under the law, pre the cross, pre grace, pre faith through Christ alone, nonetheless, we, the church living today, can so easily go back to 28 and 22 and say, we are guilty of this verse or two or more, and therefore we need to confess our sins. However, if you fall into the perpetual sin of 28 and 22, then either you are not saved, or you are a carnal Christian, which is more likely. And there are carnal Christians in the New Testament, and some of these carnal people were judged by the Lord, and went to be with the Lord, but they died prematurely. Not something that I would ever recommend for anybody. Hell also here is not the grave, something which the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Christelphians and other so-called Christian groups, quote-unquote, would have you believe. Because if it's simply the grave, why would you be expected to do something drastic, like pluck your right eye out or have your right hand removed? You clearly wouldn't do. But nonetheless, it is a serious part of scripture, 
and we mustn't trivialize it. Uh, but we have to also approach this in light of other scriptures. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. This word fornication is poinia in Greek, and that's where we get the term for pornography. Divorce is permitted if fornication, if uh, infidelity is found, and if that is found between a man and a woman, and they can't or won't be reconciled, then divorce is permitted. The innocent party, I believe, according to 1 Corinthians 7, is able to remarry, but only in the Lord. I don't take the position, and I never have done, that if a saved man and a saved woman are married, and one of them falls into the sin of adultery or immorality here, and these two people separate, that the innocent party is expected to remain single for the rest of their life. I don't believe that. If person A is guilty of a sin, and person B is innocent of a sin, and person A divorces person B, and person B has children, why should person B be expected to be single with their children all of their days? When person A will go off, and chances are remarry two, three, four, five, six times. I think person B if they are the innocent party here, have grounds for remarriage, but only in the Lord. Person A that goes on to marry the second, third, the fourth time becomes a perpetual adulterer. And according to 1 Corinthians 6, they've lost their millennial inheritance. They won't rule or reign with the Lord. They will be saved because they believed on him like we all did, but because of their perpetual sin of adultery with other people as well, they have lost their millennial inheritance, but for the saved party, I totally believe they have grounds for remarriage. 33. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. If you promise to do something, you do it. People that say, I swear to God, and you hear this all the time, they are bringing the Lord into a dispute, and for the most part, they aren't saved, which is even worse, that's blasphemy. But if you are a saved person, and you say, I swear to God that this happened, or I swear to God that that happened, you are now bound by the Lord to fulfill what you are swearing to prove what you are swearing and if you are going to do something you better do it don't have this loose uh, approach this loose mentality that you promise to do something or you promise to do a good deed for somebody don't promise to do it if you aren't going to do it and uh, this uh, oath situation found in verse 
33 should also be a condemnation to the Freemasons. They take oaths and they do what they do in secret, in darkness, and we were told in Ephesians 5 to expose those things that are done in darkness. Let your light shine before men. Don't do what you do in a corner. Be transparent. Be open. Don't be a closed book. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Say what you say. Mean what you say. Don't be a double-minded person. Be consistent. 36. Neither shall thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black, but let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil, broken promises, an unstable person. It's wicked. It's wicked for yourself. It's unhelpful for yourself because people don't know where they stand with you. It's not good for yourself because you don't know where you stand with yourself anyway. You're not consistent. But here, promises, oaths end up becoming evil if you don't fulfill them. 38. Ye have heard that it hath been said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Here we have a very interesting part of scripture. This is where the pacifists go to, to argue for nuclear disarmament. And again, the Lord isn't speaking of nations here. He's speaking of people. He's speaking of people that he wants to believe on him and become a soldier of the Lord. You have the right to defend yourself. I have always believed that and I stand by that. But if you are out and about for the Lord, if you are preaching on the street, for example, and somebody attacks you, you take it. You take the attack. If they come back a second time, you defend yourself. As I've already said, I was verbally abused some years ago and we've been pushed we've been even spat at on the street and we take it we take it we don't look to fight back we're not armed with weapons we're armed with bibles and tracks and sometimes banners and uh, we expect to get some kind of flack for what we do we aren't there to fight people we are fighting for their souls we are wanting them to repent and get saved. 40. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. That's a tough one. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 that it was better for two saved people to deal with any dispute that they had outside of any secular court and if necessary to be wronged. It was better to take the wrong here and now and let the Lord deal with it at the judgment seat. If you find yourself in court, uh, you are told here to let the guilty party perhaps even take your cloak also. Give him your garments. I found myself in court some years ago. I hadn't been saved very long and I was suing a garage for incompetence. They had done some work on one of my cars and the petrol had found itself in the water tank and that was very dangerous indeed. And I wrote to this garage several times trying to 
get them to see what they had done, to take responsibility for what they had done, and also to reimburse me for the costs. Not only had I spent a lot of money paying this garage to do what they did, I had to also go to a specialist garage to get them to reverse the damage which this incompetent garage had done. They ignored all of my letters. I was financially worse off for what they had done, so I had to take them to court. And I got to court, and I stood before the judge, representing myself, and I had the lawyer for the garage representing his client, and we both put our cases and our arguments forward, and the judge said to both of us to go into a side room and try and agree to our differences and, if possible, settle out of court. We sat down in a room, me and this gentleman, and I said to him that I was a Christian and I wasn't wanting to be there, but because I had been wronged, because I was financially worse off, because this could have caused damage, not only to me, but my family, which also would travel with me and did travel with me in my car at that time, Therefore, they had to be held accountable for this. Now, I was saved, he wasn't. So technically, this has no application to me. Had this been a Christian organization, then I wouldn't have gone to court. As I say, I wouldn't have had grounds to, and it would have been inappropriate for me to take this issue to a court and allow an unsaved judge to watch two saved people being unable to reach an agreement. But I was saved at that time, he wasn't. And therefore we had to deal with this in the presence of today's legal framework in the apparatus which is available for people to deal with and deal with it appropriately. But uh, here, if you find yourself in this situation, and uh, again this is aimed, I would say really, at two saved people, then let him or her have your cloak also. Do it to shame them, but do it to glorify God, really. That's what is happening here. That's what the Lord is really driving home. 41. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. If you have something, and you can give it, give it. Why you need two, three, four dozen pair of shoes, if you are a woman, is beyond me. Why you need three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten coats, if you are a woman, is beside me. Why you would need two, four, six, eight suits, if you are a man, is beyond me. Why you would need ten, fifteen, twenty shirts, ties, if you are a man is beyond me. If you have something and you don't need it, give it to somebody who does. This book is common sense. The entire Bible is common sense for the most part. But because we are biblical illiterates, because we are foolish people, because we have a sin problem, because we spend more time on YouTube, more time on Facebook than we do in the Bible, we lose our God-centered radar, we lose the Holy Spirit's guidance in our lives and we end up becoming spiritual babes. And these verses have no 43. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor 
and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Even in Leviticus 19, you are told not to hate your enemies. This is quite possibly what came out of Babylon, the Jewish belief that they were to hate their enemies, that they were to practice double separation. No, you were told not to do so in Leviticus. The Jews were expected to be a light to the Gentiles, to be the vehicles to bring them to the Lord. But they failed. 45. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. God loves everybody. His love was demonstrated through the death of his son. At the same time, he is angry with the wicked every day. He hates all workers of iniquity. That is a paradox. His righteousness declares his hatred on wicked unsaved people but he also loves them he sends his rain on the just and the unjust he allows his son to rise on the evil and on the good if you travel to anywhere in the world even islamic communist hindu countries for the most part the sun comes up the sun goes down it rains it stops raining, the crops come in, the harvest comes, it goes. They eat, they drink, they sleep, they play, they have families, they have children, they go to work, they come home. That's God's goodness. All these tsunamis which we've had in recent years are rare. The expression was put quite well, why do good things happen to bad people and that's true never mind why do bad things happen to good people there are no good people why do good things happen to bad people why do unsaved men and women enjoy their lives enjoy their surroundings have families have businesses have good standards of life because God lets his son come up on the good and he sends rain on the just and the unjust he loves everybody you can't get around that and if he loves everybody we are to love everybody and he's not willing that any would perish but that all would come to repentance 46 for if ye love them which love you what reward have you do not even the publicans the same and if ye salute your brethren only what do ye more than others do not even the publicans so even the world look after themselves. Even the world put themselves out for one another. We have to go beyond that. Hence why you are told to give your cloak in verse 40 to somebody who wants it. If you are compelled to go a mile in 41, go another mile. 42, if you are asked to give something, give it. 28, don't lust after that woman. She's somebody's daughter. She's somebody's wife. Don't hate somebody in 22, that's somebody's son, that's somebody's brother. Be careful with divorce in 32, that's somebody's sister. 
Don't promise something at 34, 35, 36. Because that person is waiting for you to come through for them. Be consistent, 37, 38. Otherwise it becomes sinful. 39. Don't resist evil. Don't become a hothead. Don't go around looking to get even all the time. Take a knock on the chin if you have to. Do it for the Lord. Fast every so often. Why not? We could all do with losing a bit of weight. 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Be complete. How can you be complete? Well, pre the new birth, you can't be complete. Pre the new birth, you are an enemy of God. You're the person spoken of in Psalm 5. You're the worker of iniquity. You are outside of the kingdom. But he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We get saved by our faith in him. Here the Lord is giving you the law as it is found in scripture. And he's telling you this is what he will judge you by. If you die an unsaved man, if you die an unsaved woman, this is going to be presented to you at the great white throne. Lusting, 28. Anger, 22. Unjust divorce, 42. Oaths, empty promises, 35, 36. These are going to be held up against you. And you will have to give an account of yourself to him for what you find here. Be ye therefore perfect as your Father, which is in heaven. Be ye perfect, be ye holy, for I am holy. Without holiness, no man shall see God. Okay, that will conclude the fifth chapter.